0: The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson
1: Reuters.
2: One of the cornerstones of our our justice system is the jury system. And part of that is being judged by your peers in the area where the alleged crime was supposed to happen. And I can't think where a local jury is more appropriate than this particular case... This was very fact-specific to Bristol because Colston and his links to Bristol and the large BAME population in Bristol
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first episode in our mini-series on jury trials, looking at how they're important and the integral role they play in our democracy. Um, first episode, Yasmin is going to be talking to Liam Walker QC of Doughty Street Chambers, who defended one of the Coulston Four. The hearing. I listened back to your episode, Yasmin, and one I think the thing that I love the most about it... Um, and this also came through in my episode with Audrey, is how it brought it home to me as a lawyer that this is precisely what a jury trial is for, isn't it? The idea of being judged by your peers, that the people who live in your locality and live a life which is similar on some level to yours get to have a say in what is reasonable or what is necessary um, as part of the defences that come up. And it seemed to me the most almost like the purest form of a jury trial. Absolutely.
0: I I know one of the defendants I was reading said the statue was so offensive to the true character of Bristol and it was wrong to celebrate such an individual who had such crimes against humanity in such a multicultural city. And who best to decide that as well? As you said, Becky, it should be the jury, the people, the men and women who live there uh, and can decide that for themselves. So... Yeah, I I love doing this episode, I must admit. And I'm really jealous, actually. I was wishing I was one of the jury members because those witnesses as well, Mm. who they had, uh, how fascinating to learn about the history.
1: As I seem to recall, David Oleschweger was one of the um, witnesses. And I I would pay to go and listen to that man talk about history any day. Um, So that was fascinating. I think the other thing that I really loved, though, was that Obviously, we're both ex-lawyers, and I remember um, learning about jury trials as a a, a student, Um, and I remember in my mind that they were so much associated with the idea of theft or murder or those sorts of criminal trials. And what's interesting here is that the the trials are for criminal damage or obstruction, um, obstruction of an engine, I think, in uh, Audrey's case, and they have this kind of wider context to them. That the legal defences which are being used have this wider societal cultural context, which means that the jury trial is, is even more appropriate in some ways. Yeah.
0: I mean you would think judging sort of listening on the jury about criminal damage sounds in itself quite dry. But no, not this one. I mean the, the rich history, um those witnesses, I mean, what an opportunity to be deciding on that
1: case. Absolutely. And to kind of see, I think, as well, those are the nuts and bolts of our justice system, you know, really. the, the essence of why it is that jury trials matter, why it is that being judged by your peers Absolutely. matters. And I think that, you know, we forget that, but it, even us as lawyers, we kind of forget why those things are there and why they're important. The hearing.
0: Liam Walker, welcome to The Hearing Podcast. Great to have your company.
2: Thanks very much for asking me.
0: So, Liam, before we get into the Colston case, which you've done recently, I'd like to find out a little bit about you, if that's OK. Um, yep. So my first question is, and I ask a lot of our guests this question, is I'm curious how you got to be, become a barrister. Why a barrister? And could you explain the path that you took?
2: Um. I suppose my background, in, my background in terms of coming to the law is an unconventional one, because um, I have no background in law at all. I went to a normal state comprehensive school. Uh, I preface that by saying normal, because that's normal for most people, uh, but it's not necessarily normal for people in my profession. Um, I grew up in Croydon and I had no great strategic aims in terms of a career and I, I just say that because many people who do my job do you know they think about it for a long time in advance I was more interested in playing sport particularly rugby which I was quite good at and it was through playing high level sport for, um, rugby that took me to the West country. I played rugby for amongst others, Bath, and then I went to Bristol for, and had a few years playing for the city's rugby team. And because I studied in, um, Bristol for, um, for three years, but I lived there for four or five, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but my my dad was the first person in his side of the family to go to university, and he was very keen that I went to university. Um, my mum had gone to university, and so I went to... I didn't really have much advice, and I went to, I went to Bristol UWE. So again, uh, most people in my profession would have gone to the university, or would have gone to certainly a Russell Group university. And my real, I didn't really have any any ambitions. I was just quite enjoying life. And then I had a very bad injury playing rugby, um, which uh, meant I lost the use of my arm for a bit. Um, It was a neck injury. And as a young man, that meant that um, well, as a young man, because I was a young man, I don't mean that in sort a of pejorative sense. Um, but as a, my experience of being a young man, a lot of my self-esteem, I suppose, was wrapped up in um, being an athlete and I couldn't do that anymore. So, um, and I literally couldn't do any exercise and that's always been a big, a big part of my life just because that's the way I'm built and I need to move around otherwise I don't sleep and all the rest of it. And that very much, um, rugby was very much my sort of identity and particularly playing at a high level. And the reason I'd gone to the West Country is because rugby, certainly at the time, and I think now, rugby is bigger in the West Country than football is. Um, and I was, the way in which I was advised to, to go there was because rugby is a religion in the West West Country. And it is, it's really um, the big sport when you go really, the sort of gateway to the West is Bristol. And then I all of a sudden I couldn't do it anymore, and that was weird. With the sort of weird loss of identity, and then I didn't have much to do, but it meant that I had to concentrate on my degree. I did a maths degree; it was maths, statistics, and business—a sort of oddly titled degree, business decision analysis. And I was able to concentrate on that because I wasn't devoting so much time to exercise. But I also did a bit of student politics on the side. And I got sent away to a, it was 1997 or just before 1997. I got uh, um, the election, I think it was May the 1st, 1997, wasn't it? When Blair and the rest of them got in. And I went to this place in this stately home in Grantham. And I remember it was Grantham because it was, that's where Margaret Thatcher was from. And it was owned by a, a trades union and we listened to speeches by some pretty unimpressive people and one of them was a an MEP and one of them was I think an M- MP or a, a what would be known as a spad and the MEP said something like he didn't he wasn't bothered what happened in the city and I thought this was ludicrous given that the basis upon which we are a or were a world power was because of the square mile and I thought that's a really odd pretty ignorant statement to make from an MP so that, that didn't go down particularly well um, as a starting point as these sort of amassed young p- potential um, politicos were assembled. Then there was an MP and um, some of Um, And he said something about councillors. And at the time, if you were a councillor, you didn't get paid. And he said something about councillors and not thinking they should get paid. And it's the same as my view with magistrates. If you're not being paid to do a job, particularly a job that that, you're being paid to govern locally, or you're being paid to determine what are very sort of pivotal issues in people's lives, It really selects out a certain group of people and you basically need to have the money and the resources to do it. Anyway, again, I was sort of cast as even more of a pariah because these people were being fawned over by the uh, assembled masses. And an MP came out in the background and said, I completely agree with what you had to say. Would you like to come and work me? And so the week literally, no, Three days after I finished my finals, I went to work in Westminster with an MP called John Grogan. And during my time with him, he, he said, you should be a barrister. And I had done a lot of pretty soul-destroying jobs. You know, I'd done the lot. Think about any jobs that you did and that include, you know, soul-destroying for me, but that included... Working in an insurance firm when I was had my year in industry, it also included being a trainee futures trader. It included working at McDonald's, it included working in factories, it included being a security guard, cleaning, working on the bill. You know, I'd done a lot um, because I wasn't from a particularly affluent background. And I knew when the money ran out, that was the end of university for me. And... When John Grogan suggested this, what, the conclusion that I had come to was I just wanted to do a job which wasn't boring and was interesting. And I, and, and I said to, and I thought to myself, well, what do they do then? And he uh, asked John, and he said, look, you master a brief well and quickly, and you're articulate, you've got good judgment, and they're the sort of skills that a barrister needs. So I looked in on it. And I got some very loosely based legal experience from uh, someone who was passed on to me by a friend at the rugby club. And I went down to Barclays Bank and I said, can I have £35,000, please? And they said, would you need to, as a professional studies loan, and it, it, effectively the conversation was, well, I'm going to be a barrister. And they said, oh, barrister, okay, yeah, you can have thirty-five grand." Now, thirty-five grand back then, It was 1998, they were giving money out like drunken sailors on shore, spending money like drunken sailors on shore leave. Certainly now you wouldn't get that sort of thing. No. But what it brought with it was a certain level of, you know, I'd worked out to pay that money back, I would need to do the law conversion, then I'd need to do um, pass that, then go to, to bar school, then I'd need to do pupillage. And then once I'd got pupillage, I would back myself to being able to get a practice so that I could keep up the repayments, basically. And that was really the sort of confidence of youth, because you do, as you, you're older, you think, i would never made that decision now, you know, but you've got less to lose, I suppose. Um, and I remember them lining us up at Westminster West, um, Westminster Law School for the CPE saying, look, around half of you be, won't be will be here at the end of this course. And then same for the bar finals and then saying, oh, if you pass this, the bar finals, less than half of, of whoever's left will get pupillage. And I just didn't know anyone in the law. And so I grafted and I worked really hard and I was under a lot of pressure. And, but I didn't have the contacts that everyone else had and I was still receiving rejections for pupillage two years into getting tenancy because I naively thought, well, it was criminal law which interested me. I mean, all power to those to people who do civil law, right? You know, I'm sure you like it. But I tend to think that it's the criminal way I think any student is lying if they say that the the, the uh, criminal case law uh, stories when you're um when you're studying them they're the most interesting and then for me you know you're dealing with people's liberty and that's a tremendous responsibility um sometimes it's too much for people but um i i managed to get one interview for pupillage and i was taken on a, a small set and um, I did twelve months at that set, and I decided that set wasn't for me. Um, sort of much to the displeasure of the people at that, some of the people at that set. But my pupil supervisor, I said to him, "I'm going to go to this particular place for it was Hardwick Building at the time uh, for a third six rather than apply for tenancy here." And my pupil supervisor said, "You're making the right decision." You know, and that wasn't in his interest to um, say that. I went to Hardwick Building. I was taken on there as a tenant. We became 15 New Bridge Street. And I was at 15 New Bridge Street for about eight or nine years. And then I was asked to interview for Doughty Street, which I declined initially. And then circumstances contrived um, to the point where... um, I thought well actually probably that's a good idea and I've been at Downty Street for about 11 years now and um, now so that brings us almost up to date and then during the Bristol trial I got told I was informed that I'm to be made a QC in March.
0: Well I saw that huge huge congratulations and that is you're the dream guest Liam I ask one question and I'm <laughs> getting the whole history it's fantastic. Um, but I'm going to pause you there because I'm I'm interested in the, the the background that you came from, and it is an unconventional route. No, you know, didn't go to a private school, and I, I know a lot of people in the legal profession, particularly barristers, have had that background and the connections and the networks, as you said. Do you think, given your background, and I think on your website it describes you as the man of the people. Um, <laughs> do you think that actually helps you connect with some of your clients on a on a much more authentic level because you know maybe that can be a barrier for some people if they see someone who's so different from them do you think that background has actually helped you forge those relationships with your clients
2: i think that's a really good question um first of all i haven't got a website it's my chambers website but your, your um, chambers
0: website yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah
2: um look i say this to lots of people the bar is in a really interesting place it's a demanding and exacting place you meet some incredible people some incredible people and some really nice people and also like any work environment there are some people that i choose not to spend time with and i choose to avoid something that irritates me about my about the bar is when people market themselves on the basis of their intellectual ability. And so what is intellectual ability? Because there is no one at the bar who's stupid, right? Everyone's clever. Um, But what people try and do is they damn with faint praise um, people's people's uh, achievements, or they'll use their angle and say, you know, they're very, they're cerebral or whatever. Generally, in my experience, what that means is those people who market themselves as clever, and they there are people out there, many, many, many people who are much more academic than me. Um, but being academic is one branch of the intelligence tree. Okay, let me give you another example. When Paul Gascoigne scored that goal in Euro 96, when he chipped it over Colin Hendry's head, there were electrical impulses traveling from his brain to his foot and that is brain function and it's the same as being able to assess a situation and communication in the same way is a branch of the intelligence tree. I think it's an advantage. If you have been able, if you have been exposed to lots of different people, I see lots of people who in various areas of life. And I'm very aware that I'm a white middle class male and I consistently exposed to people who are white and middle class and they just hang out with white middle class people. That's not my experience and that's not my background. Also, it's not just about class or ethnicity or gender in terms of the variables of people you meet is poverty mm. you know if you have been in a situation where you know your money's going to run out or you're in a you know you're at magistrate school and you're dealing with a mother who's stealing meat from Sainsbury's because she gets you know she might make a fiver out of 50 quid's meat she's you can understand, or you should be able to have the the ability to empathise with people for their plights. And if, and I th- suppose the word you use is authenticity. I think it's that honesty and being able to look someone in the eyes and go, "I can't put myself in your shoes, but I have some appreciation of what's happening here." And I'm, I'm not just talking about the the person who. Is having the choice of stealing to feed their kids or whether, but it's also, you're in a case where your client is instructing you not to run a particular defense, which may be available to him or her, because they fear that their family are going to be killed by the person who um, it may prejudice if you run that defense. Yeah, The less intelligent person will run, will just be wanting to win that case. We all act on instructions, but there is ego and all the rest of it. So my strength or one of my strengths is I think that I am able to, and the phrase would be, um, it is used for many of us who are able to get on well with clients but I'm able to get on well with clients because my, the start, you know, the start of my day is generally dealing with someone who is having the worst day of their, their, in the history of their life. And if I can gain their trust, I can put them at ease. And at the very least they can have confidence in me being able to understand the nuances of their case and their situation. And they trust me in terms of not just my ability, but my appreciation of all the factors in their case, then I've done well. And so my background has helped me in that respect. Let me give you absolute example. If I, people are going to say to me, you know, they do the milk round at various universities. And, you know, when... It, it, there is a chasm of difference between going if you're lucky enough um, to go to Oxbridge or one of the other great universities and, uh, and, and and I should say that's brilliant if you're there. My advice is not necessarily to it's not necessarily that the the best thing you can do to be a barrister is to go to the debating club and go for this that, and the other. All of which I did. My advice is go to a nightclub when there's a bit of pushing and shoving the queue and people are half pissed, work out how that happens and the roles that people play or being in a situation where there's heartbreak or whether there's adversity and working out how people deal with that and different. And, you know, really, I'm trying to understand the human condition. I'm not saying you're going to get a full appreciation, but those human experiences, if you can absorb them, And you can understand them and you can relate them and you can communicate them to people other than a white middle-class accountant from um Ernest and Young or Price Waters Cooper House in the boat club you have an intelligence which is valuable in the job that I do
0: interesting because um, we, we spoke to Joanne Pugh, the Dean of BPP Law School, and she was talking about the skills that lawyers, that the up and coming generation, new generation of lawyers should have, and it should include, you know, that emotional intelligence as well. And uh, she's part of the O-Shape Lawyers Program. So I refer listeners back to that episode, which has just come out. But um, that's really interesting having that whole skill set and intelligence is just one part of that, as you say. Um, so it's really interesting. Um, And so what are your main areas of practice now then, Liam?
2: I've taken Silk um, as a criminal barrister, but I have other areas of law in which I practice. I practice media law and also um, regulatory law.
0: Brilliant. So let's get into the Colston case. So you defended Sage Willoughby. Yep. And so what I'd love to hear from you and for our listeners to understand, what was Sage Willoughby's part in this um, case? How was he involved in taking the statue of Colston down?
2: Sage Willoughby is a young man with a wisdom beyond his years. And he is an extremely, it was an absolute privilege to represent him. He was, he went down to, the statue and he was with his friends, um, Ryan Graham and Jake Skews. They, I think they uh, met up separately, but um, essentially his role in the taking down of the statue is that other people couldn't scale the statue to put the ropes around the statue. And he put a, the ropes around the statue's neck and the ropes were pulled and the statue came down. He didn't pull on the ropes, but he was the person who put the ropes around the statue, which facilitated it being pulled by others and taken down.
0: Right, and I understood Did he bring? He brought the rope to because it was part of the Black Lives Matter protest, wasn't it, back in June 2020? So, as as I understand it correctly, who took the ropes with the intention of pulling the statue down, or?
2: well it was t- there were two two other people who brought the ropes it was actually the ropes were passed up to sage because sage just happened right. to be a quite a proficient climber and he uh, but the ropes were brought by others to um the statue and within the evidence that came out there was a there had been they had obviously thought about it beforehand so uh, um yeah that's correct
0: and so I'm sure listeners know who Colston is, but just could you just give a brief explanation as to who Colston was?
2: Edward Colston was um, the son of another in, um, very wealthy man, and he was effectively the C. What was termed by David Olashoga as um, the CEO of the Royal Africa Company, and the Royal African Company was responsible for effectively having a monopoly on the slave, uh, the slave trade and slavery um, between Africa and the UK. And Colston was an MP, I think, if I remember correctly. He was an MP. He was what would be called an industrialist. And he made a huge amount of money from um, um, slavery and the slave trade. He... Was uh, although he lived in London, he also had strong links to Bristol, Bristol being a huge port. And later in his life, he gave money. I, uh, um, I hesitate to use the word philanthropist, but that's how he would be characterized, and that's how he tried to characterize himself later on in life. But his philanthropy was confined to those who shared his particular branch of faith around the statue there were plaques of various bits of colston's life and one of the brass presumably it's brass bits on the plinth around the plinth showed him in very sort of posh you know in very highfalutin clothes providing you know some money to a to a poverty-stricken child who you know the suggestion was that he his generosity and his philanthropy and all the rest of it but as Olashoga told us in the extraordinary history lesson that he gave to the jury you know this was this was basically a PR rebrand the statue went up 100 years after Colston's death and it concentrated on the money that he'd given rather than the way in which he'd got his money and he was responsible for the the death of something between I think it's about 40,000 people men women children and directly responsible for I think something like 80,000 people um, who'd been taken from on ships from Af- Africa and given the population at the time it was a huge amount so that's who and that's who Colston was you know he enriched himself off the back of the misery of um, human beings from Africa.
0: I'm curious, how he, you said he was, well, I don't think you used the word directly responsible for the deaths, but what was his exact involvement, Colston?
2: Well, he was, he, he was the chief exec of the company which transported enslaved people from Africa to the Caribbean, to America, and... Those ships were the death rate on those ships was horrific. The highest proportion of deaths were was in I think the Middle Passage. The slaves were shackled to um, the deck of the ship. They were they were unsanitary conditions, so disease was rife, so they would die. Um, people would go round, see who died that day, throwing them over the board and sharks would follow the ships all the way because, um, they knew, um, that there would be, um, food pushed off. What was one of the things which was affecting for me was, you know, I said, when I called David Ola which we'll sort of go into that, that's part of what you're going to ask me, I suppose, and the relevance and, how, and the defenses and all the rest of it is, um, wastage was built into the price of a slave wastage like spoilt fruit meant how many other slaves had died on the ships and the those involved in the trade of human beings used you know misery uh, traded in misery for money, they created a subclass of human through the law. For exa- example, the Barbados slave code allowed slaves to be castrated. There were slave. Um, there were instances of violence. For example, slaves being um, staked to the ground, being burnt alive, heads being chopped off sexual violence was ubiquitous in terms of the control of female slaves. Um, So I suppose in modern day um, legal terms, he was the controlling mind of a monopoly in terms of slavery in this country. So he's directly responsible for genocide. Yes, Or he was. And and
0: is it right, I've read that the plaque actually described him as Brit, um, most virtuous.
2: Bristol's most virtuous son, I think, something like that, wasn't it? I can't something, remember, like that, so, yeah. something like that, yeah.
0: Yeah, so those words would be pretty stinging to a lot of people, and particularly if you're in the black community as well, you know, just what you've described.
2: The headline-grabbing witness was David Olashoga, but the most powerful witness, as far as I was concerned, was Lloyd Russell. Lloyd Russell was a is a community leader, a, um, a black man from Bristol whose parents came over in the Windrush. He played for Bristol Rugby Club. He was an athlete um, and he remembers passing the 11 plus, going to a grammar school and then suffering racial abuse for the first time in his life. When he got to his school, he ran home. He said to, he cried to his mum and then his mum told him his future effectively and said, listen, son. I can't go into Broadmead Shopping Centre on my own without your father because they spit in my face. And he detailed how he was called very various racial slurs, which, you know, there's no, no reason for me to repeat them here. But I made it clear when I called Lloyd to give evidence, we needed to hear, to hear the words. And um, it was a very powerful piece of evidence. But what was powerful was because I said, well, what did the, the statue mean to you, and he said, "Well, I'm." He was into his uh, genealogy, and he could trace his ancestry back to um he, um to slaves in Jamaica. And what was pertinent was from his research, he took a DNA test, test and he had Scottish blood in him. And he said, "Well, that's a white man's blood," and it was Olashoga who set up the comment. Because I asked him how the female slaves were controlled, and he said that sexual violence was ubiquitous. You know, rape, there was a place in Sierra Leone which was called the Rape House or the Rape Room. And the Scottish were big players in Jamaica, in the Jamaican slavery. And if so, I was able to say to the jury, Did you spot the link? Because basically, Lloyd Russell's great, 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 great grandmother was raped by slavers. And so if only you only need one person to be caused offence or to perceive that statue as, um, as indecent. And on the basis of his evidence, it qualified. So the issue after that was, was the act reasonable? If the statue itself was, um, if the jury perceived that to be a crime, and the defendants were seeking to prevent a crime, then were their actions reasonable? That was the next step. So the first step was, was it a crime? Second step was, were their actions reasonable in the circumstances?
0: Yeah. Let's get into the the law bit then, the legalities of it. So Mm -hmm. to clarify, Sage Willoughby was charged with?
2: Criminal damage.
0: Criminal damage. And his defence in law, you've already explained a little bit, Let's break that down. What was his defence in law?
2: His defence in law was prevention of crime. Um, uh, there were two aspects of that. Um, we submitted that, the, that he had a defence in law because the statue itself was threatening or abusive within the, within the sight of a person likely to be caused harassment, alarm or discre- distress, um, that's effectu- effectively a Section Five Public um, Public Order Act uh, uh, offence. Um, also, the that the statue itself was an indecent display under the Indecent Displays Act 1981, which is a pretty obscure, obscure statute. Mm. Under um, under Section Three One of the Criminal uh, Law Act 1967. Um, a person may use such force as is reasonable in the circumstances in the prevention of crime. Uh, That applies also to self-defence, for example. If you see a, a crime being committed, you can use reasonable force in the circumstances of the prevention of that crime. And the question whether the degree of force used by the defendant was reasonable in the circumstances is decided by the reference to the circumstances as the defendant believed them to be and that's section 76.3 of the criminal justice and immigration act 2000 um, expressly applies to section 3.1 of the criminal law act 1967 so you've got um, first of all the reasonable force and then um, the degree of force whether it's reasonable refers to that Um, and then um, seven, section seventy-six-seven B of the Criminal Justice and Immigration Act two thousand and eight outlines considerations to be taken into account in terms of the relevant, in terms of the circumstances of the case, are that evidence of a person only having done what the person honestly and instinctively thought was necessary for for a legitimate purpose constitutes strong evidence. That only reasonable action was taken by that by that person for that purpose, uh, and it's the purpose which is legitimate, not the defendant's actions. So effectively, the jury had to assess the reasonableness of Sage Willoughby's action and the other defendants' actions in the circumstances which they subjectively believed to exist, and the relevant circumstances in the Bristol case included the circumstances as believed by the defendant, that the display of the statue was threatening or abusive to persons likely to be caused distressed, or it was indecent, an indecent display.
0: Mm, that is really helpful, Liam, because I think in the in the general press and the general layperson doesn't really understand there is a legitimate defence in law, a lawful excuse, which you've explained.
2: And the the issue here is the lawfulness, or otherwise, you know, the prosecution. And, and I should say, I received lots of very complimentary things were said about me, and which of course is lovely. Um, but there were other lawyers involved in the case, not least the prosecution, William Hughes, Queen's Counsel, and uh, and um, David Scott, his junior, who pre- presented a case incredibly professionally, Um, and also not least uh, the recorder of Bristol, who um, conducted, um, uh, presided over what was a fair trial. And it is unhelpful when politicians, because they're not getting the result that they want, then question the legitimacy of the trial process. This was a situation where, you know, one of the cornerstones of our of our justice system is the jury system and part of that is being judged by your peers in the area where the where the alleged crime was supposed to happen and I can't think in recent memory where a local jury is more appropriate than this particular case because People say this is a charter for criminal. No, it's not. This was very fact-specific to Bristol because Colston and his links to Bristol and the large BAME population in Bristol. So the jury were, were there to decide whether those actions were lawful or unlawful. And that was it. And they decided they were lawful, hence the acquittal.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a nice link, actually, because, I mean, this may be an example of culture wars. I think that's what you may be referring to. But Robert Jenrick, uh, Tory MP, he made a comment that the jury's decision undermined the rule of law. I mean, I guess you've probably already answered what, what you think of about that comment. But that's probably, as you said, probably unhelpful because the jury is, you know, one of the tenets of our democracy to... to have a, a jury of twelve men and women to to make that decision, and it was a factual decision
2: a jury of twelve people being directed on the law that was agreed by all of the lawyers prosecution and defense in the trial concluded that the actions taken by those four defendants were lawful and they were in the pre- and they were seeking to uh, um, prevent crime. There were various, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a lawyer, I'm not a politician, um, but I'm also a citizen. And I think um, there was John Hayes MP wrote to Suella Bravman on behalf of sort of the anti-woke common sense group of Tory MPs, claiming that the jury was devoid of an understanding of criminal damage because I think the quote was, you damage, destroy or deface property without permission, you are guilty by definition. Well, that's not right.
0: Yeah, and Swell of Bra that's the Attorney General, that just is- for those people who yeah. may not know.
2: Yeah, that, il- that illustrates a lack of understanding about the law, which to me is incredibly concerning, given that that particular MP or any MP is involved in making the law. And what we're seeing at the moment is... The trivialization and the un- consistent undermining of the rule of law by this government, you know, it's there shouldn't be comments on ongoing trials and they are free as free as any person to comment on what they think is good, what what they think of a decision and what they don't think of a decision. But displaying a lack of understanding by saying, you damage, destroy or deface property without permission, you are guilty, shows an ignorance. And they should educate themselves to the law if they're going to take the opportunity to be in front of the microphone and um, of proffer opinions. Because as we've seen recently, by the Jimmy Savile Keir Starmer, what happens is people then start to believe that that is the law or that is correct. And there is a responsibility when you are in a position of power to accurately reflect what the law is. We are, as lawyers, bound by a professional code of conduct. We put our cases on the basis of our clients' instructions. It was a privilege to um, represent um, Sage Willoughby. It was a fascinating trial, but it would be wrong to say I only represent people who um, are charged with criminal damage. I represent people who, some of which are um, charged with much less savory offenses than than um, Sage Willoughby was, but I'm bound by the same rules of professional conduct. And the difference between me and those people who, for the purpose of headlines and making themselves popular with those who have been lulled into a sense of ignorance, is that I have to be aware of what the law is. Um, I think it was Richard Littlejohn, Daily Mail commentator, commentator asserted that the that the four had made no attempt to deny that they had been caught on camera committing criminal damage. No, they were recorded pulling down a statue. It was concluded they did not commit criminal damage because they were not guilty. I mean, the issue here is lawful excuse. And... Um, it, it's, there seems to be an ignorance through a lack of education about the law. Um, I, I am a big fan of the secret barrister who has been incredibly valuable to the legal profession and I think the general public in explaining what the law is and also the problems with the law at the moment because we are facing a criminal justice system which is te- teetering on the edge of collapse because of Underinvestment, and that underinvestment is because, much in the same way, as if you don't teach slavery and you don't teach about the rule of law, then people don't understand it. And how can you value something that you don't understand or you don't know about? Sorry, that was quite a lot.
0: I I feel don't apologize. I feel there's a whole separate podcast on 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 that subject alone. But um, thank you for that explanation. And I just want to finish with this, Liam. This has been an incredibly fascinating interview. I could talk to you for a long time. But what are you, when you look back at this case, what are your reflections, sort of feelings about it?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I was approached directly by Sage um, for one reason or another. And he spoke to me and we developed a rapport early and I immediately realized that this was going to be a fascinating case um, and it would raise various issues I suppose my reflections you know um, my reflections there are various uh, reflections on this but um, I think you know when juries deliver verdicts that offend the political establishment that causes issues but as a criminal barrister, um, I was very keen, and I think um, I'm grateful to um, the Recorder of Bristol. He made it clear that the the thrust of my speech was that the jury had to apply the facts to the law, and if they and if they did so, I submitted they should acquit Sage Willoughby. Um, but But the way in which you do that um, is by planning how you're going to um, present your case from a very early stage. And I'm very uh, and I'm really proud of the way that I did that. And there was a slight bit of fallout at the end of that. But um, I thought very long and hard about how I would do it. It's not the the only example of this sort of... um, Verdict, which offends the political establishment. I mean, think about the 1985 acquittal of Clive Ponting, the civil servant who was charged with um, breaching the Official Secrets Act concerning details of the sinking of the Belgrano in 1982. There were also, in 91, I think it was, the acquittal of um, Michael Randall and Pat Pootel, who were represented, I think, by my head, by, certainly by my head of chambers Edward Fitzgerald and I think also Jeffrey Robertson they were acquitted at the Old Bailey of freeing a spy George Blake from Wormwood Scrubs I think this case fits into the pantheon of verdicts where juries have, have judged their fellow citizens and said no we're not having that it was slightly different this one because those cases I think Involved the lawyers, the judges saying there was no defense, whereas the judge, rightly in my view, but I would say that, um, left the defenses of prevention of crime to the jury. And so there was never any decision to make about the continuing representation of um, my client, or I suppose for the other um, um, lawyers. Either. And and it's that speech that you hope that one day you'll make as a lawyer because you're asking the jury to apply the law to come to a conclusion, which is effectively, very simply, it can't be right to have someone who is a racist who has committed genocide you can't be right to have a statue that venerates him in the middle of the town center. And if you think that's right, then um, you may think that they're guilty. I mean, that was one of the, one of the themes, but it was expressed in a different way. It was just simply, there is a, there is a defense available to these defendants and um, we say it applies. And if you looked at the facts, you looked at the fact that uh, there had been petitions There had been demonstrations, there had been discussions in the council chamber and through decades of political apathy, nothing had been done about that statute, which is why it was so fact specific and why this decision is not a charter for criminal damage. Because if there was someone else who wanted to run the same defense, they would have to go in front of a jury and a jury may find a different decision.
0: Yeah, and I, th- I think it was for over 30 years those petitions were being submitted to the Council of Bristol to that's try right. remove this that's statue. Right. Yeah, so it's a very long that's, time. That's,
2: that's right. I may or may not have um, signed a petition like that myself when I was a student in Bristol, you know. Um, but um, I, I knew about the, the history of that campaign because... Um, I had an appreciation of the multicultural nature of um, Bristol and just and I, I suppose going back to your first question, you know, your background, well, my background was that I, I went to live in Bristol, not as a student, I went to live in Bristol as someone who was representing their city as a, as a, um, as a rugby player. And I hung around course with students in my, uh, when I was studying, but also I lived there for a couple of years as a, just a citizen of Bristol representing the city. And so I hung around with all types of different Bristolians and I, I, I don't, I don't profess to, you know, having a complete appreciation of everyone's opinion, but I certainly had an appreciation of some of the factors that might come into play. And so I was able to draw on those, And it was just a classic jury trial for an advocate. And that was really exciting. That was very satisfying from a professional point of view, being able to present your arguments and present your arguments in a way that, um, were accepted by the tribunal, were, um, argued against by very competent, um, prosecution counsel. And very pleasant prosecution counsel as well, and it was a, an illustration of the professionalism of our um, of all of the lawyers that took part. And I take, and I uh, make that point, including the prosecution and of co- and, and the judge. And that's not toadying, you know. This was the Jewish system was on trial, and it's I suppose it's irritating for me when you see a situation regardless of the result when you see a, a trial which is conducted with that level of with from all the other people involved the level of skill and ability for then it to be rubbished by people looking for a cheap cheap headline because that undermines the rule of law in my in my view and that makes me cross
0: interesting and wouldn't it be amazing I'll finish with this but wouldn't it be amazing if you were what, if you were a student who signed a petition of that sort to get that statue down, do something with it, and then you became one of the barristers to defend one of the four who took it down.
2: There's a, there's a symmetry to that, isn't there?
0: There is. There is. That's beautiful. A man of the people, Liam Walker. Thank well, you for I don't being, know about that, a, there fan, we go. Yeah, just take it. Just take the compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being a wonderful guest on the podcast for the hearing the hearing thank you so much for listening and um you can probably tell from my voice i absolutely loved interviewing liam walker qc i hope you enjoyed it as much as i enjoyed making this podcast episode for you as ever listeners please do like and subscribe and also if you've got any feedback any future guests you would love for us to interview please get in touch the hearing a legal podcast from Thomson
1: reuters To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever
0: you get your podcasts.